Welcome to Shift, a college admissions ACT and SAT podcast for a changing world. I'm Tyler, the founder of Achievable, and we have an affordable ACT course that includes everything you need to ace your ACT tests. A full textbook, tons of ACT questions backed by our memory-enhancing algorithm, videos on key topics, a built-in study planner, and full-length practice exams. You can get a free trial by going to achievable.me, and if you like it, the code podcast gets you 10% off at checkout. Also, if you have a question or topic you'd like us to discuss in a future episode, please contact me at tyler at achievable.me with the subject line podcast topic. Now, let's get started. Today, we've got Jason Morgan with us, and Jason is currently residing in Bogota, Colombia. Colombia? I need to say that correctly. I took eight years of Spanish, but I'm quite rusty at this point. <laughs> uh, and... Uh, would love if you could just introduce yourself and your background and kind of w- why you're a great person for today's topic. Yeah, I've been in the, uh, well, thanks for having me, first of all. I've been in the college admissions counseling game for 20 years. In the first 10 years or so, I worked primarily with um, just American clients, uh, Asian Americans in, in the West Coast. But then in the last 10 years, I've expanded internationally and I've had hundreds of clients in Europe, in the Middle East and now in Latin America. Um, I am I'm not living in Bogota, Colombia, but I am here right now for a few months because I am partnered with mm. uh, Summit Ed Consulting, which is a full-service admissions counseling firm here in Bogota. It's owned by um, a very, very capable, um, talented woman named uh, Quinn McMahon. She's a U.S. citizen who holds a master's degree in education from Harvard University. And she's been in Bogota for several years, helping Latin American students uh, apply to college in the United States and in the UK and Europe. And uh, I'm partnered with her for the last few years. Fantastic. Great. Well, yeah, so let's talk about what it's like to apply to U.S. colleges from Latin America, right? Um, I think, and, you know, I think it's not just some of these things will be for all international applicants for sure, but I think, you know, we're focusing on Latin America in this podcast. Um, what are the different things that they have to do that are maybe extra or just things that, you know, you don't think about as an American maybe? Yeah. International applicants face a, a different um, uh, series of hurdles that they have to jump to get into college in the United States. And that's often why they hire people like uh, me. First of all, they have to take the TOEFL. The test of English is a foreign language. Um, they have to they have to score at least a 95, typically, more likely 100 to 105, to 105 and possibly 110. Um, sometimes their transcripts from their schools are a bit confusing or unclear to U.S. eyes. Uh, and if that happens, occasionally the applicant has to be provide an independent credential verification service. It doesn't happen that much um, with students at international schools. Um, those are those are, you know, very well accustomed to working with U.S. Uh, universities, but it does happen with students who go to more local schools in their in their countries. Um, other things that other hurdles they face are letters of recommendation. Oftentimes, the people they ask to write their letters of recommendation don't speak English or write English, so they need to be translated. Um, admissions committees sometimes have certain prejudices or biases. I don't mean that in a bad way, just in a neutral way. Um, and they will only look at certain portions of an application for a student from a certain country. 
um, often the academic transcript. This can be good or bad, depending on your transcript. And then after right. they get after they get accepted, they have to go through all the visa stuff. They have to get an F one visa. They're not qualified for federal financial aid, and then. The financial aid they are qualified for at universities is much more limited, and it's um, and it varies. So overall, right. international applicants, because of all these problems, international applicants often come from upper middle class and upper class families who can afford to pay. So, right. Well, there's. I mean, there's a lot of money even in just let's say <laughs> what's the cost of success, right? Like, well, okay, now we have to fly you to america and put you up in yeah. an american house for yeah. however long and you know uh, the average rent in the united states now is something like 1500 dollars a month or something like that sure. that's a lot of money for people in certain countries they also have to consider exchange rates as well because um, sometimes the exchange rate with the u.s dollar fluctuates a lot depending on what country you're coming from and i've had students who had to turn down decided to turn down u.s universities when their own currency tanked and they went instead to Europe. They have to balance that. Right. So. Huh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it seems like there's a lot of, like, just challenges a lot of American applicants have to overcome. Um, I, I, what are also some of the, I mean, those are, like, the structural challenges, right? Those are the things that are just, there are extra requirements, and there are things about the process that just aren't really going to change. But even when they're building their application, I feel like just because you're not in the U.S. market doing U.S. college prep things from basically 13 onwards that you're at a disadvantage for as well. Yeah, a lot of the, um, the, the resume building activities that exist for high school students don't exist in Latin America. So we'll talk about Latin America specifically now. Um, there's some of that, but not a lot of it. Um, the, the emphasis on extracurricular activities in the United States, you don't find that um, uh, to anywhere near the same degree around the world, uh, especially not in Latin America. So mm. they do things, of course. Obviously, people fill their time outside of classes. Um, and many of them who know they're going to the U.S. will take steps to try to make extracurriculars for themselves. Um, but overall, they have uh, thinner resumes by the time they're 17 or 18 than a U.S. person often does. Yeah. Oh. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's good. That's good to know. I mean, the other thing is, um, I think that just in general, like, there's a lot of these activities that come through the schools themselves, right? Call it, like, robotics club or whatever. And I just feel like I've heard that international schools, because I heard somebody talking about uh, applicants trying to apply from the Middle East as well, like, their attitude is like, why are you doing robot? Like, why are you doing this other stuff? Just focus on your school, get better grades, right? Yeah, and and they, they don't, the schools themselves don't really support your pursuit of extracurriculars. Absolutely, you're 100 percent right. I work with a lot of Middle Eastern students too, and they they face an uphill battle from their own schools, uh, trying to start extracurricular clubs at their schools. To a lesser degree, that happens in Latin America. Some of it is funding. Sometimes they simply don't have enough money to start a robotics club because let's say you have to buy a couple of Arduino kits and that can run five or six hundred extra dollars that maybe the school hasn't budgeted for. Mm -hmm. So those things can be a problem. I'd also say that urban problems, um, problems of living in a city 
that's not as well organized as, let's say, a city in the UK. That's a problem too. Yeah. Uh, students can have trouble just getting to high school or getting to college because of transportation problems. I have a client right now, who, he's in his 30s, but when he was in college, undergraduate in, in Latin America, he had to take some, undertake a two-hour trip each way from his house to his university just to go to school. He was from a disadvantaged right. family. And on that bus ride one day, he got his laptop screen smashed by accident because it was so packed. And when he arrived at his university, he went to give his presentation and he couldn't even open his laptop and power it up because of that. And then as a result, he got a lower grade in his class. Uh, those sorts of those sorts of cascading events, you know, have a long term effect on a person's transcript and on extracurriculars as well. Yeah, not to mention just like the minor but still important like aspect of how long he had to spend four hours a day traveling. Mm -hmm. Sure, you're studying on the bus, kind of, but it's not really a focused study area, especially if it's so packed that your laptop's getting crushed. I, and I, yeah, he was on the Transmillennial in Bogota, and if you know anything about the Transmillennial, it's impossible to do anything on it. It's shoulder to shoulder. So yeah, so it, for that exact reason, it's like why you know it it basically means like imagine just think about like your typical day as an american now think about you just lose four hours mm -hmm. yep. it's just from eight to twelve every night is just gone it's just or you know you could split it in half you could say you wake up at eight you're like paralyzed trapped in a box until 10 and then you wake and then from you know call it 6 p.m to 8 it's the same thing I mean, that's like a, that significantly hampers not only your ability to do schoolwork, but also like your ability to have like a life yeah. outside of school. Yeah. So it's a lot more challenging. Yeah. And, you know, extracurriculars. I mean, if it's a two hour bus ride to the school, maybe you're not as motivated to go do an extra club. Maybe you just want to get going home. Yeah, absolutely. Also, another problem I, uh, I've encountered with students all over the world, also in Latin America, is um, those relating to their letters of recommendation that they need for their applications. Um, oftentimes, they'll ask teachers if they're, you know, if they're high school students or if they're adults applying to grad school, they'll ask their employers for letters of recommendation. But people in Latin America and all over the world, uh, tend to not quite understand the importance of these letters the way that Americans do. We sort of have grown up mm -hmm. with knowing what these LORs, the importance of them in the application. Um, and so because they're not viewed with the same you know, high value that we do, the, the recommenders will take their sweet time getting to these letters of recommendation. And sometimes they'll even ask the student to write the letter of recommendation themselves. And then the teacher will submit it or the employer will submit it. This is really bad. Uh, this is a challenge they're facing. Right. You don't, you don't want to write your own letter of recommendation because the, for, there's a lot of reasons. I don't want to go into it, but, and, and when I talk to really my clients, bad, it's like, uh, not just from an integrity point of view, but it's also just a bad idea anyway. Absolutely. It's, it's not, it, it shows a lack of integrity and it actually can hurt you for other ways. Like if your writing style matches your writing style and your essays, you know, colleges look for that stuff. The admissions committees right. look for that. And then 
sometimes the employers, if they do write a letter of recommendation, they don't use good examples. They don't understand that the best letters of recommendation show specific personal experience with the applicant. They'll write a very general statement, you know, that this is something older people will often do, I think, you know, a general statement of approval for the for the client or for the student. But you don't want a general statement of approval. You want something that shows deep personal experience with the student. So then the student has to like sort of uh, grab the bull by the horns and start demanding from the teacher or the employer that number one, it comes on time. And that number two, it's well written in terms of detailed specific evidence of their relationship and success. So all of this that I just described rarely happens in the U.S. because we all know about this already. Right. Well, and we all did it ourselves as as kids, right? So as an adult, you kind of have this idea of like paying it forward that just may not exist if it's in a, if it's a different culture. That's very well put. That's exactly right. Yeah. Standardized testing yeah. Is, a, is another obstacle for Latin American applicants, applicants everywhere in the world, but in Latin America in particular. Uh, I'm not sure why. Even some of the highest, most intelligent students I have still have trouble with uh, like the GRE, for example, or the GMAT or the SAT. I think it's evidence that, that our standardized tests, as, as much as we'd like to believe, are neutral, culturally neutral. They aren't. They aren't. That there's certain embedded ways of expressing, asking people to express their intelligence that benefit people from one culture and, uh, and uh, sort of hurt people from other cultures who can't conform to that, that first way. Right. So. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's only natural that if you are not, say, speaking English every day in the classroom or writing in English every day in the classroom, mm -hmm. the writing sections or the reading or English sections of the, of the SAT and ACT are going to be more difficult, right? You just have a lot less experience. It's, it, it's all tailored towards an American curriculum too, right? So maybe yeah. they're spending more time on geometry than you did or whatever it is. So there's a lot of reasons. You, you're right about that. And, and I, my feeling is, which I can't explain quite so well yet, maybe in another year or two, is that it goes even deeper. It goes to cultural norms that are embedded within the exams that they that people in Latin America don't quite understand as well as like Americans as, as a US citizens do. So um, one other thing I've noticed, and this is what I work with a lot with um, Latin clients, is their application essays. Uh, you know, most when you apply to any program, undergraduate or graduate, they ask you for some sort of personal statement. And that statement always has a word count limit. Well, Spanish is uh, people who express themselves in Spanish using a lot more words than people who express themselves in English. I'd say it's about 50% more words to say the same things. And, and I'm fluent in Spanish, so I can say this with a, a certain degree of authority. Um, this, this, this is a problem when there's a word count because they'll express themselves with that same sort of floridity in English that they're accustomed to doing in Spanish. Um, this is a problem because you've got to stick with the word count. And a lot of my time I spend with the people on Google Docs uh, asking them, how can we best reduce this paragraph to conform to the, mm -hmm. the word limit? So that, that is very specific to Latin America. Interesting. 
Yeah, are there any other kind of things with essays that you feel like are specific to Latin America worth mentioning here, too? Female applicants often um, have to decide whether or not they're going to write about their experience as females in what is sometimes still a very male-dominated environment. You know, in Mexico and elsewhere, they call it the culture of machismo. So many, especially uh, graduate students, women who have been in the workforce for a while, they will absolutely write in their application essays about what it's like sort of charging forward as a female in an all-male environment. This is something that like our mothers and our grandmothers went through in the United States, but many of them are going through it for the first time in Latin America. Um, Mm. So it's a good thing to write about. You have to be careful how you write about it. You know, I wouldn't dedicate an entire personal statement to that topic, but usually I suggest clients spend one paragraph on their experience uh, as a female. Yeah. Right. Or unless, unless something happened that was like a formative experience, then you could write like your story about it maybe. But Right. If it was really important uh, in your life, then, then you could write the entire thing about it. Yeah, absolutely. Another thing I've noticed in the application essays, a common trend across many, many types of students in Latin America is their desire to go to the United States to uh, obtain their their degree, whether it's a bachelor's or a master's or whatever, then come back to their home country and fix it. This is a really common thing. And it, it's good. Obviously, you should want to fix your country. Um, but after mm-hmm. after a few years of doing this, uh, I'm trying to find trying to help them find angles on that that are not quite so cliched any longer you know but it is a, it you know fixing their countries is for lack of a better term uh fixing is definitely a, a big thing and i'll give you an example of it here in colombia uh, right now i believe 44 percent of the country is unbanked so you know what i mean by that yeah, yeah, the meaning that they don't have like basically a bank account that they're either entirely in cash or other things. They're still stuffing all their savings into their mattress. They don't have bank accounts. And I've had many, many clients here who are going into finance, things like that. They're looking for solutions to this. And they want to come to the United States in order to learn business so they can use eventually use AI tools to help coffee bean farmers back in their home country be persuaded to take their cash and their mattress and put into a bank account. This will help you know, their country sort of join the top ranks of uh, economically dynamic societies. So right. this, is, this is a big pattern I've noticed in Latin American applicants, and I applaud it. It's good. Yeah. Well, and I think also, too, especially when you go to the U.S., you can see just like, hey, we just need to like copy these things, and this will be an improvement, right? Um, Mm -hmm. yeah, not obviously not to say everything about the U S is an improvement, but there are definitely some things I think that are like the unbanked thing that you just mentioned that are good examples of that. Yeah. Yeah. I have friends here in Bogota and one of them told me, you know, we like to pretend that we hate your country, but deep down, we actually kind of really admire the organization of it and we want to copy it. (laughs) So uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's pretty remarkable when you get into U S history, how, unique it was in the grand scheme of things um yeah yeah it was kind of the first like the first democracy sure but it was also like the first kind of type of capitalism that 
gave people individual rights to property and things like that. So there's like, there's a lot of good things that mm -hmm. are still not fully replicated across the world yet. Yeah. Yeah. And for better or worse, we're all kind of yoked together in this hemisphere in the West. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And on the planet, depending on how sci-fi you want to get. Another, um, another thing I've noticed, by the way, this is just a funny note. Uh, I hope the listeners laugh at this, but I've had many, many adult clients, males, who follow their girlfriends to the United States for graduate school. Um, like their girlfriend gets admitted to, you know, a place like Chicago or something like that. And then they apply to follow, you know, to be near the girlfriend. Um, it's not something that we cute. normally do in the United States. We certainly don't often follow our, maybe we follow our spouse, but we typically don't follow a girlfriend or boyfriend to a foreign country to be near them. It's, and it's, it's it's like a Hallmark movie. That's how I think of it. But but it uh it, it happens quite a bit. Mm -hmm. That's cute. Yep. Yeah. Anything else you wanted to share about just like um you know things that Latin American applicants have to deal with or like advice for them? Um, I would say if I can give one piece of advice, and this may sound self serving, but definitely get help from someone like me, uh, or. Mm -hmm. or, or Summit Ed Consulting, uh, owned by Quinn Nguyen. Um, that is, the help that we provide is really, really going to help jump over a lot of um, obstacles that Latin applicants don't even know exist. So that's my, right. biggest, that's my biggest piece of advice. Yeah, no, I think that it's, it's always good when you're doing something like that to have somebody in your corner that understands the rules and has done this before. Figuring it out all on your own is pretty hard. Yeah, and that holds true for all international clients all over the world. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much. This has been Shift, a college admissions podcast for a changing world, hosted by Tyler from Achievable with Jason Morgan. You can get a free trial of Achievable's ACT course by going to achievable.me and use the code podcast to get 10% off at checkout.